Hello and welcome to the next episode of How AI Built This uh, with me, Liam Wilson. On the podcast today, we have Joe Watts, um, founder of Affini, who are a small but very much growing data analytics consultancy um, headquartered in Edinburgh. Um, they're aiming to make data analytics accessible for all businesses really and they've started doing doing that for their clients and we'll continue to grow this year and we'll talk about more in the podcast. So alongside running a startup, being a mum, I get a general day-to-day busy life. Um, Drew also manages to squeeze time in to be a board member of the Data Lab who are doing some incredible work um, and also a non-exec director of GamStop which is a, a really really important and, and powerful initiative around gambling. So really just a busy, busy person. So really appreciate her time today. Uh, as always, thank you to Cathcart Associates. Don't really do much of a copy for this sponsorship, mostly because I work there. I feel a bit weird doing it, but we are one of Scotland's premier independent IT recruitment consultancies, working with a whole host of really interesting companies and people across Scotland and indeed the UK. And as I said, they're my employer, so I would obviously say nice things. So yeah, this was a really fun conversation. Hope you enjoy. Um, welcome, Joe Watts. So, hi Joe. Hello. Uh, thanks for coming up. Thank you. We'll get right into it for lots of time-related reasons. But I think the kind of format I've uh, done recently with some people is kind of starting right at the start of education. I think I'm right in saying from our last conversation that you grew up in Warrington I and did. Cumbria. Yeah, until I was 11. So I went to the primary school in Warrington and then okay. we moved house and uh, went to secondary school in Cumbria. Okay. And Scotland. And Scotland. Yes. It's all over. And then ended up at university in Cambridge. Yes, which is why I don't sound Scottish at all. We've <laughs> never lived here for years. <laughs> uh, was Cambridge University always the, the plan from like a young age? Possibly. It was always something I wanted to do. I remember when I was about nine or ten and somebody told me that they knew someone who had A's at everything and, and they'd gone to Cambridge and I thought I want to do that but didn't know whether I could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously you could. You kind of moved to Cambridge for that. Uh, A good experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Cambridge is is a unique opportunity for anybody. I've heard that just to take the university of it. I've heard the place is amazing. Yeah, it's quite small though. So I I definitely felt at at the end of three years that I was ready to go and live in a real city. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite close to London, I suppose. You can always get like a bit of a fix. Yeah, if, but, if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, but what they did was they put the train station right on the edge of Cambridge to deter students from actually popping into London. Really? So back to actual university. So you did uh, was it a combined degree of maths and astrophysics. So um, I suppose I, if we if we go back to me deciding what course to do at university, yes. and um, I, I I kind of thought I wanted to do um, engineering. Okay. And I, I, I was enjoying maths at the time, and, and I couldn't decide between maths and engineering. And so I, I think I went and had a careers interview, and it was probably the worst advice I ever got, which was, you know, do you like taking your bike apart? And I went, no, not really. So I did. So I thought maybe I should do maths because I didn't really like taking my bike apart. They won't ask you that in maths. <laughs> exactly. But what I realised um, when I got to the end of my second year at Cambridge was that they'd invented this new course for anybody who'd done two years maths or two years physics, which ah. was a third year in astrophysics. Um, and it was a new course that year. It was it was a really amazing opportunity, and I went. Actually, the answer, right answer wasn't engineering or maths. The right answer was probably physics. Oh, okay. But nobody had pointed that out to me at the time. So I changed to do my part two in astrophysics. Nice. So after three years, you said you were ready to 
move on from Cambridge? Experience a bigger city. Yeah. And where did you say to do that? So I came to Edinburgh. And then is that PhD in astrophysics was in Edinburgh? Yes, it was. Yes, Amazing. I love Edinburgh as a city. I think it's really weird. So being from Edinburgh, I feel incredibly spoiled. So when we lived in Australia for a year and I'd done a few months in America as well, like I really just wanted to come back. Uh-huh. And like I think that's just I think it's just got a bit of everything other than sunshine. Um, that it just makes it such a good city. And I think for university, I don't think I appreciated this when I was like kind of at uni or until I got to the job I've got now. That Edinburgh Uni and the universities in Edinburgh are like world renowned. Yeah, that's fair, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and particularly, you know, astrophysics. It was one of the places to go to in the country. Is it yeah. still as good for like the astrophysics department? Of I guess course. it's still up there, yeah. Yeah, because I mean we've got the, the Royal Observatory. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. And and so yes, I was based at the Royal Observatory for three and a half years. Oh, that's so cool. It's quite a big hill though. Less fun. Yeah, um, not bad for, for for improving one's fitness, but I love it every day. <laughs> so um our sales director is a, a frustrated physicist and uh, I remember he told me that like so like Durham University is great for like a certain part of physics and then like Edinburgh is great for astrophysics and like there's just some of these schools that are like synonymous with it. Um, so it must have been cool to see you've done your PhD there. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, I was really lucky actually because um, I remember my supervisor I'd chosen rang me up in the middle of the summer holidays before I started and, and he said, I've got some telescope time and it starts on the 2nd of October um, and my PhD starts on the 1st of October and he was like so is that the project you want to do because I need to sign you up now and get you sorted and get you flown out to Hawaii <laughs> yes <laughs> so so there was me on day two of my PhD on a flight to Hawaii I'm so jealous if I was wanted to go to Hawaii not to do anything in education just to go uh, how long did you stay there? Oh, so that was just sort of three nights of telescope time, but then I stayed on for a little bit. I was going to say that's a long flight for three nights of work. Uh, yeah, but I mean, that I'd spent the next year analysing the data from three nights of telescope time. That's amazing. And that's what, um, so people probably get bored of this, but from speaking to the, my sales director, Stuart, who worked in physics, when data science started becoming like a real hot role for us at Cathcart, like a lot of clients asking us to find them data scientists, when we noticed a lot of kind of ex-physicists were getting through the later stages and getting the mm-hmm. jobs. He explained it to me really succinctly that in physics you have no choice but to deal with loads of data mm-hmm. and make it something. So like you just said, you spent a year with three days worth of telescope time. Yeah, it wasn't a data. lot of data, I, I guess. I mean, in those days, I, I joke about the fact that I brought it back in my suitcase <laughs> on, on three DAT tapes. So, <laughs> so it, you know, it was lots of pictures, but it's, the whole point was you're trying to capture, you know, you're looking at... I was analysing images. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, you're trying to clean up those images and make sure that you can accurately estimate the amount of flocks coming from some very distant object. Yeah, okay. And so you have to be quite accurate about the whole thing. And like the the fact that there in any strand of physics like data is just there. Like that yes. that's that's just gonna always be there, right? So the people that have done like a PhD in that world when they suddenly come into businesses, it's a very similar process, just with a different angle. Is that fair? Yeah, but it took me, oh, I think nearly 20 years to realise I was a data person. <laughs> well, well, definitely, I think that's not uncommon. So, no, I never set out to become a data scientist. I'm a, I'm a kind of person who did some stuff and realised that there was one common thread through everything I was doing, and that was data. Well, we're going to come on to it, so we won't go into too much detail now, but in the financial services world, I've spoken to loads of people that 
X number of years ago worked in financial services and now realised that they were probably a data scientist. Yeah, like I just... still haven't really come out the closet as a data scientist yet, I don't think. But um, I'm, I'm starting to question what I would call myself if I didn't call myself yeah, that. Yeah, you slowly have no choice. Well, now you run your own company, you can call yourself whatever you want, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, so you obviously completed your PhD. Was that, uh, Some people have mixed feelings of a PhD completion, like it's the end of like a real long, hard road, or they kind of just really enjoy the whole thing. No, I really enjoyed my PhD. Absolutely enjoyed it, but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue. So um, yeah, so when you kind of get, do you know before you actually finish a PhD, is there discussions on, am I going to stay in academia? Will I do postdoc? Will I do lecturing? Like, is, is that like a natural conversation when you're doing a PhD? It's a little bit of one. Again, probably I probably had bad careers advice at the time. And yeah, okay. I probably had two lots of bad careers advice and, and, and that one was um, so do you want to go into business and I said I don't know and he said do you read the Financial Times and I said no and then he said maybe you shouldn't go into business so I shouldn't, I shouldn't go into engineering because I don't take apart bikes and I shouldn't go into business because I hadn't read the Financial Times that's just like <laughs> I, I hope if it didn't happen to you then I wouldn't have believed it like that, that those things actually happened but I said we, um, so on the uh, podcast with Sam Rhinus um, who you work with, we talked about careers advice and not really getting, it's all quite generic. And that's a level below generic. If you didn't read the Financial Times, you can't go into business. But So yeah, so you kind of accidentally didn't go into business at that point. No, so, so I went into doing something. So I, I worked in defence research for a yeah. year. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted to use something that used the sort of skills that acquired during my PhD, um, sort of mathematical modelling in some sort of environment which wasn't necessarily business. Yeah. Um, so I went into defence research and ended up spending a year modelling how warships interact with big waves. That's quite cool. It was. I mean, and at, at one point, I was actually crawling all over this warship and measuring how much the metal was bending. Whilst it was being hit by waves. No, I didn't do the sea trials. Oh, it was. Good. It was more the. That sounds like it was well. More than while it was in dock. But. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's really interesting. You don't really think of that being how the, I, don't, I never really thought about that needing done, but of course it would yes. to an extent. Was that was that fun for you to be in like a commercial? world or did it just feel pretty normal so that wasn't very commercial i think that's why it wasn't so fun okay um it was um it was public sector at the time because okay. it was before defense became private privatized ah, okay i get you so yes quite a long time ago um and yeah there were people who it wasn't perhaps focused enough on being profitable yeah, okay, I get you. And now it's the complete opposite. <laughs> um, all right, so you, you do that first year, and then where where were you in that time? Like, where was that? That was in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh. So well, in Recyth. In Recyth, yeah, yeah, okay. And then you make a move to Nottinghamshire. Yes. I followed I, a man. That's terrible, isn't uh, it? I mean, we, st- we still hear that. Not necessarily following a man, but following a partner. Yes. Uh, 
when we ask people why they're going to move to Edinburgh for the job we have or whatever and it's just like oh my partner's moving there. Yeah. I met my husband doing my PhD and he actually carried on in research Okay. and see so he got a postdoc in Nottingham. Oh nice. So yeah so I, so I made a given I wasn't enjoying the sort of defence research yeah. too much I said I'll go with him. Fair enough. And, and decided to turn my hand to software development. I was going to say so I had it in my notes that you worked as a software developer was that one of those things where you that was the job title you were a software developer? Yes. Yeah okay and anything around data you said that was a kind of constant stream but was that one so I think that uh, that was probably less data okay. the, the least data related role I've done but I think was also really really valuable um, so I worked as a small talk programmer and small talk's probably something that nobody uses any longer but what it does is teach you um, you know really good sort of development logical thinking type skills um, and I would advert, you know I would suggest that lots of people try and become a software developer for a period of time for that sort of structured, formalised approach to writing code. Do you think that's lost a little bit, and this is me completely going off topic, but is that lost a little bit with some of the more modern frameworks that people can use that are, although very complex and to be good at it, it takes a lot of skill, is there some of it, is some of the kind of logical thinking part of it gone that there's less of those languages being used? In software development, or is that no, fair? I think software developers still have to think logically. This, this they still have to structure, you know, how are they going to approach a problem? You know, what are they going to use? They still have to think about the the clearest way of expressing that that doesn't get them lost, stuck in a loop and is easiest yeah, okay. to test. I, I don't think, I think that's all there still. No, that's good. So I always wonder, like, when you see some of the technologies that aren't as popular anymore, but when you do speak to developers and programmers who've used them, saying that, like, they were really tough. There were tough languages to get your head around, like you needed to be like pretty ingrained in it all. Whereas now, obviously, with all the new JavaScript libraries and all the kind of open source work, like it's not as I think it's not as like long a process to get your head around some of that. It might be quicker to develop, but it doesn't mean you, you're let off from understanding what you're doing. Yeah, okay, that's a good way of putting that. So you were working there for a while doing that, and then did it become clear that you missed the data side of it, or was it more coincidence? No, it was actually the company um, struggled financially for a while. Um, so they didn't pay us, and that was a bit of a... That's kind of why you do work. <laughs> so yes, and it was about six weeks before I got married, and they, they went, oh, you've not been paid today. And I went, oh, maybe it's time to look for a new job. <laughs> <laughs> Having recently got married, that's a good decision. I don't know how expensive it is. Um, so yeah, I started a new job with Capital One the week I got back from my honeymoon. So I suppose the finding a new job was reasonably quick. Yeah. As a statistician in a financial services company, would that be the first job if you started everything again now that you would come out of the closet as a data scientist? Would that? Yeah. Do you think you'd be called a data scientist at Capital One today? I think they are. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, so I think, I might be wrong, but everything that I've looked at and spoken to, financial services seems to be the one that really kicked off the use of their data mm -hmm. whether or not they started the whole data science machine learning like boom of the last few years maybe not but it feels like those like investment companies and um, banks building societies they realised quite early that they had a lot of data and they could probably do something with it so w what were you doing with them? So I was building credit risk scorecards yes so um, that is absolutely sort of data science as we would call it now and yeah. Capital One were actually very advanced in their approach to using data. 
and they tried different techniques um, and you know both in the UK and in America they were trying different things so it, it wasn't even standard scorecard development it was pushing the boundaries of what you could do and understand about your customers or predict about your customers even at that point in time which I'm trying to work out now was probably nearly 20 years ago. So you were trying to predict like the habits of customers and what you could potentially uh, what products they might be interested in? I think it, in, in that particular instance it was actually um, was there a longer term risk in taking on these customers? Yeah, okay. Because normally you calculate the sort of short term risk over sort of 18 months to 24 months. Yeah. However, they were looking at sort of a five to 10 year horizon. That's and interesting. For example, and using slightly different techniques. And did you, did you pick up a lot when you were there or was a lot of that stuff the kind of work you already understood from your degree and your other work you'd already done or was it all quite new? I think it was all quite new. Um, you know, that the approach to scorecard development was quite new. It's not something you learn doing astrophysics. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, you know, the writing of code, even though I, yeah, they were using SAS, um, so I had to learn that as a language. Um, but the writing... A, a fan? Of, Do you like SAS as a Well, language? SAS are just down the corridor here, so I'd probably better not Love say. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, yeah, I think that's also a thing I've noticed in financial services. Like, it's a lot of SAS, like, that's where mm-hmm. they started, and a lot of them still use. Absolutely. So that's good, adding another string to the bow. Did you move back to Edinburgh for the RBS roles, or did they have somewhere in Nottingham as well? So, so no, there, there was a trip to Germany in the middle of all of that. Oh, lovely. So, so my husband then got another postdoc, but he was in Bonn in Germany. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah, I commuted between Nottingham and Germany for that. <laughs> well, Commute makes me think of, like, you got the plane there and back in a day. N- no, I, I, <laughs> I used to come to... Not- I, would, I would go to Germany on a... Thursday evening, yeah, and then I'd come back on a Monday evening and spend three days. So I worked from home Monday and Friday yeah. in Germany, which was very, which to be honest, Capital One was very forward thinking of them. They didn't question yeah. it at all. They, I said my husband's moving to Germany. Can I still keep my job? And they said yes, absolutely. We struggle with clients who, when someone asks for a couple of days remote or something like that happens, which is pretty major. You're not asking because you want to work in your home office. You're asking because your partner's moved. Uh, so no, that's amazing that they did that. No, and it was brilliant, and um, but I did sort of see there was an end to this. So um, yeah, I, I so for most of the time I was commuting, I was actually pregnant. <laughs> yeah, fun travel. It was tiring, and then um, and then I had a year, a maternity year in Germany, which was. So you stayed in Germany, yeah. Stayed in Germany and had my year year's maternity leave in Germany. Was the baby born in Germany? Yes. That's cool. How's your German? Nicht so good. <laughs> Uh, that's cool though um, that you got to do that and then did, did you decide after the maternity year that as a family you wanted to be in the UK yes yeah. pretty much Edinburgh well we all love Edinburgh so it was a conscious decision to move back to Edinburgh is your husband from Edinburgh I know you said no not him that's where they went back to Nottingham yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting so you end up at RBS slash Williams and Glen. Well, it was RBS at the time. Yeah, and then they bought Williams and Glen, right? Yeah, but that was well. No, they were trying to offload Williams and Glen. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so again, doing some more work to Capital One with kind of risk-related roles, but then some data governance. So yes. Yeah, so the the nice thing was when I came back from maternity leave, I obviously left Capital One, and I went to do pretty much the same job for RBS. That's good. Which was actually very useful when you've had a year off and you're unsure of where you are. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually quite nice to go back to you don't have to get your head something totally new no, from scratch it's very similar were they in a similar mindset of um, uh, like forward thinking 
long-term planning as Capital One or were you doing the more shorter-term stuff? Well, I, I just joined their sort of school card development team. Yeah. Um, and I stayed in that for about five years. Okay. And then had child number two. And again, I guess the having children bit kind of makes you rethink your priorities a little bit. Yeah. And so then I came back from that maternity leave and decided that I wanted to sort of slightly switch roles within RBS. So um, I, I, I sort of went out and found my own role. Um, That's good. So, so they were they were developing a new decisioning system for their scorecards, and one of the things that had annoyed me previously was that they had quite old systems, and so the ability of what you could do with data was limited because um, they because of the systems you could code it up on. Yeah. Okay. So they were putting in a new system. So I managed the sort of delivery end of that. That's cool. And so you're going to carve that out for yourself because... Well, it was sort of, I went and found the job and said, I can do that. It's a good lesson for people as well, though, because I'm sure that happens loads, that there's like something that's not quite right and needs done, but I kind of need somebody to go and do it. Yeah, so I suppose I put my hand up for it, really. Yeah. Um, you know, started off by, yeah, you start off by chatting to people who were kind of involved and then you kind of talk your way into it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Um, but no, so you stayed there for a while then in the end. So, so I was at RBS for over 10 years. Amazing. And so, so I did, so I did, did school card development for about five years. So in your sort of standard data scientist role. Yeah. And then, then I built the system for two years, which was, to be honest, it was actually really back to my point about things that I think people should do. I learned a lot about, um, the wider business. Yeah. And about project management and things like that. So up until that point where you so focused on like the scorecards and the yes. risk side of it that not that you didn't you just didn't get a chance to really understand what everyone else was doing. Yes. Yeah. yeah and I think that op- you know people need to seek out those opportunities to understand the big picture. Um and then the even bigger picture came when at the end of us delivering that system uh, this was not one where I went looking for it. The role came looking for me, and I was. It was very much Joe go and do this, and I said, "Do I get a choice?" And they said, "No, not really." <laughs> so the opposite of when you put your hand up for a role, you were thrown yeah. into a role. I was thrown into a role. It was uh, setting up data governance within the retail bank at RBS. Yeah. Okay. And they were trying to find somebody who understood data, and they were, and they just basically and said, they came "Go." To the conclusion that you were going to do it. <laughs> They thought I'd be. I said, "Do I get a choice?" They go, "No, I think you'll be good at it." Off you go. Did you like that change? It was again a big learning curve, um, and it's actually quite interesting. I really value the time I spent doing data management, data governance, because it's something that most people don't do, and it, I find it quite critical. So I find myself going on at the moment. I'm almost on a kind of personal mission at the moment to get the data management, data governance people talk to talk the analytics people and speak the same language. Because they sit in silos in most organisations. It sounds organizations. like they should talk as well. I know it's easy to say that now because you've just said that it's important, but like <laughs> it does make sense that they should like be friends. Yeah, but they they they've come at it. They've all come at it from very different angles. Yeah. So 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 data governance people are, have probably come from a regulatory background yeah, or okay. a, a technology background, but you know, d- d- data analytics people can't do analysis on poor quality data. Um, and it, so it, it's about getting everybody to speak the same language. So, you know, some of the things I've done has been trying to get people to advertising the, you know, the importance of data management and good data governance without going over the top about it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But overall, a pretty positive experience at a pretty, like, major company. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I took that team from sort of just me, and by the time I finished doing that role, I had a team of 15 in place, and I had set up a sort of remediation capability. You must have learned a lot about, like, team management, recruitment. Influencing, I think, was the Influencing, thing. Influencing, yeah. I, I'm not sure I was any good at it, and I still don't think I was that good at it, but, um, yes, the, you had to learn very quickly on the job, because as the thing about data governance, data management, is it's actually all about influencing people to care for data. Yeah, okay. And people don't want to be influenced to care for data. So there's a sort of carrot and stick, and you try and you try and wave the carrot, but actually you end up using the stick. And is it still like that? I know you're, yes. you're in a slightly different position now, but do you still find that happens, all the customers you speak to and the people that you know in that world? Well, the thing is that with data management is that hardly anybody's doing it. So only the big corporates are actually doing it. Yeah, okay. And it, I mean, it's, it's needed for everybody. <laughs> you know, from small startups upwards, but it's not being done. So that's a big part. So if that's a good segue on to that you, after all the experience in financial services and your PhD and living in all these different places, you kind of decide to take a bit of a, a kind of plunging and go and set up your own business. Yeah, so, so just, just to sort of finish my career, I, I then spent another couple of years setting up a, a, the analytics team for what never became Williams and Glenn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, then I went into consulting for a while, and while I was in consulting, I began to realise that there were small companies that... It, it, it is similar. There's small companies using data, um, and they don't have anybody helping them. Mm. So back to my point about the sort of big companies doing data management, the big companies are also doing analytics. Yeah. But the small companies aren't doing either. Yeah. And somebody needs to help them because it's as critical for them to be successful as it is for the big ones. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, I suppose, what prompted me to to go out on my own and set up my own company to try and help the the underserved with data market, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think when I was thinking about it and, and looking at how you go about it, I think it's helping those companies that... Um, like probably aren't gonna win any awards for their AI solutions or their massive data science teams. What they need is someone who understands data to help mm-hmm. them make their businesses a bit easier. Yeah, I mean, there's so we see so many manual processes yeah. happening and paper, and if you can just automate and digitize things, and and do a little bit of analysis, you can really, really make a big difference. You can kind of really change how a whole company works. If they're up for it. If not, they're up for it. I not, think people are more up for it now, is that fair? Are, they get, are you getting to the point in meetings where they're kind of asking you to do more? Not every company's ready for it. And I think one of the challenges actually there is that they've got a successful business and it's been successful running the way it is. Yeah, that's fair. So it takes a bit of a leap of commitment and imagination and finance to yeah. change the way you run your business. And not everybody's up for it. Is there ways of that uh, you're able to kind of, I think when I spoke to Sam, that there's like the data quality checks and even just like suggesting solutions before actually implementing anything, just to try and get some buy-in. Is that like a good way of getting people, or even some case studies as well, and um, if people see their competition doing it? Yeah, I think... can sometimes spring. The key thing is to start small. And I know Sam's probably said this as well. It, it, you just have to start doing a little bit of something. Yeah. You know, it's not about, you know, we're going to go all AI and we're going to build a model. I mean, hardly any companies I work with are ready to, to start building models. No. 
um, they actually just need to be thinking about how they join their data up in their systems and how they keep it cleaner. Yeah, where is their data? Yeah, well, can they even access it? Yeah. Or do they have to go to a third-party agency to get hold of it? Or I think, I don't know if it was Sam or someone else that said that some of the customers they work with, the data's just in their head. Yeah, there's that too. That's, that's just terrifying. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so sometimes you're putting in systems to get it out of their heads. Yeah, you're kind of slowly extracting it from them. Uh, no, I remember we, uh, going to a talk in London around AI and one of the um, senior members of a consultancy said that if it sounds like a really cool project, you probably shouldn't do it. Is that you should start nice and small, nice and simple, work your way up and maybe do something amazing at the end of it. But like you, like you said there, like you just start with a simple automation or digging out some quality Calcul data. Calculating your KPIs, I know that sounds completely ridiculous, is actually working out what your KPIs are. Yep. That's a, often a good place to start. It's what, what am I trying to do here? Um, and can I, can I measure it? Do you get the opposite sometimes when people see that the AI is on the news every day um, and they get in touch with someone like you and just say, like, can you do some AI for us? No, I think uh, it's more the other way around, actually. People have said, yeah, we hired a data scientist, but it didn't really work out for us. Yeah, okay. And so, there's so many reasons why it's not going to work out. Yeah, so I'm kind of, I, spe I guess another of my missions is to, to, to never, hope never to hear that statement again. Um, I, I don't want people to be put off because they went about it in the wrong way. Yeah. Because often a data scientist isn't the answer to their problem. So what you need to do is to help them work out what their problems actually are. Yeah. And a data scientist may be an answer, but it's not the first thing to go for. No, and I think it's unfair as well. We, we've spoken about this a couple of times on the podcast, but it's unfair to hire someone with a PhD or someone straight out of university or whatever it might be, and they're the only data scientist in a company and they're just asked to do data. Yeah, you what, is that, what does that even mean? You've landed them in somewhere, some kind of, you haven't set them up for success. No, exactly. And some people will get through it. Like some people who are really proactive, they've decided just to do as much as they possibly can. They will maybe make it work somehow but loads of people need at least some direction yeah even if it's just priorities yeah what, what do you want me to do rather yeah. than just go find data and do something with it yeah it's, it's actually what will be valuable to the business yeah I mean so even some direction which is this is our biggest problem is, is, is a start yeah because a lot of people would be able to take that and maybe come up with a solution and then maybe it's not right but then they can It'll probably be better than what they've currently got. And it can kind of snowball onto a different idea. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if you don't even have a priority or a reason for doing it, then you'll end up just building a really fancy model that doesn't tell yeah. you anything. So another one of my bugbears is fancy models that sit on laptops, <laughs> never get put into production. Yeah, I can imagine that would be frustrating. Um, so when your company or our customers have hired a data scientist and it's not worked out, or sometimes maybe they still have them, is it just a... Is it just education? Like, do you just have to get them in a room, sit down, and try and understand what they're trying to do, and then just give some professional opinion on it? Well, often we go in and poke around. Yeah. So okay. we go in and poke around and try and understand their processes and what they're trying to achieve and what they're using to achieve that. Yeah. And yeah, normally the answer—it's a lot of common sense, to be honest, um, with an understanding of what is what is possible. That's a good, yeah, I think common sense and data science is unfortunately lacking. Well, that's what we're trying to do. Well, it's, it's good, great for you. Um, and is it all companies then? So you mentioned that when you 
noticed in consultancies that it was a lot of big customers that got serviced. Are you really looking at like any industry, any size, any challenge and see if you can put something together for them? Yeah, because what you see is actually they're all suffering similar problems. So people will say to me, you know, do you understand our ERP system? And I'll go, no, I've never seen it before in my life. <laughs> but I vaguely know what it's trying to do. Yeah. And, and you can see where it doesn't join up. Yeah, you can spot And you can see problems. where all the manual processes are and you can see whether people are taking data dumps out of it in spreadsheets and then losing them and taking 10 copies of the same thing. <laughs> you know, so, so you see the same, same challenges. Yeah. You know, slightly different flavours of them and obviously some people are more mature than others. But, yeah, it, it sort of doesn't really matter. It's probably better not to be familiar with the sector. Yeah, because you don't want to do a, a kind of cookie cutter this is what if we need to do to all these companies. Like it's more, you get to explore and find out what they need. Yeah. And some people will be exactly the same, I'm sure. But there'll be other people that don't need X and other people that don't need the next thing. So yeah, it's quite nice you... for you to be able to go into all of them. Yeah. What does 2020 look like as a, as a business owner? Is there big plans for this year or is it trying to work out where you're adding the most value? So, so I think for us, it's about growing the business. For um, a customer base. Yes, growing yeah. our customer base and growing our business. So um, we're recruiting this year. And we're taking on full-time members of staff. That's exciting. It is. It's also terrifying. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it's... And then it's about making sure that we then embed continuity and quality into the way we approach things. Um, I'm also doing a lot around, at the moment, around sort of the skills agenda. Yes, we're which, just about to get onto that. Yes, which is, going to which be, is a little thing that I just love and probably doing too much of. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you see... So the team will be in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Will you hire a mixture of technical people, salespeople to try and grow all avenues of the business? Or do you think there's like some areas you will definitely need? So I think it's about actually finding the clients where we can do some more practical data science. Yeah, okay. Um, so we need to grow that area of the kind of work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, so we need to have build our case, a repertoire of case studies, because we're still a young company. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's what we need to really do. Um, yeah. That's really exciting, though. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned the, the kind of skills agenda. I've kind of banged on a bit about the data skills gap. And I've said publicly that I don't really think there is a massive skills gap. There's a big massive like knowledge gap or ignorance maybe, where people just don't really know what they want or they think they know what they want based on what like I don't know Amazon, and Facebook are hiring, like yes. and you're a small construction company in the west of Glasgow, like you're not going to get that person. So there's other ways of doing it. Whether that's using an Affini, whether that's tapping into some of the amazing university resources. And I think a lot of the people that I've ended up working with over the last five years have had no real industry experience, but a lot of the tools to be successful, if, like you said earlier, are kind of set up for success. Is that a similar theme to a lot of what you talk to people about? So I suppose I'm trying to, probably trying to do too much here. (laughs) So so, um, I'm trying to... I'm, I'm doing things from school children right through to executive education and everything in between that at the moment. Big. So I'm current, I've, I've been involved with the SQA around their um, MPA, school level qualification and college level qualification for data science. So does that mean, you'll, I'm sure you'll go into this, but can you now get a SQA, like high school qualification 
in data science. In data science. Yeah, it's, it's the only country in the world that you can. That's amazing. I know, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. However, so I've been involved in diff- in writing some of the units for that, so yep. that some of the fr- and then uh, writing the assessments as well. So I've kind of held the pen, and, and at the moment I'm in the middle of actually writing learning materials. So I'm writing down sort of definitions for what we mean by things so kids know what the right answer is. Yeah, so we were going to talk about, this all kind of ties in, but the data analysis course for Code Clan as well. Yes. So this ties in because you're writing that. Where do you even start with a data qualification? So... In terms of content? Yeah, well, you, 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 I literally sat down and did a mind map when it came to the CoClan course. Um, I sat down... It's a great place to start. Yeah, and it's like, what, what do you think people need to know? And I suppose my, I would say, possibly uniquely broad background gave me that view of what I thought people needed to know. And I've, you know, I've had people working for me, I've had interns, I've recruited people, I could see where all the gaps were. Yeah. And so, even if I didn't know it, I knew what they should know. Yeah. And where they were, maybe they didn't know. And you could see, you know, working in industry, what skills were actually needed. So I sat down and went, they need to know all about this stuff. And then, you know, pretty much sat down and worked out what was the right order to teach it in. I, I, I mean, you've made it sound like it wouldn't have taken that long. It sounds like it would take ages so, to so, get a good course. Like So the, 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 the mind map of, you know, what do you need to know? You yeah, that's that, quite quick, right? You can do that in a day. Yeah. But then working out, you know, at, at the next level of detail, okay, what specifically do we need to teach them? What are the learning outcomes yeah. for that is a lot harder. Yeah, you know? And that took a few months rather yeah. than a day. You know, I, I, yeah, and, oh, on a sort of lesson by lesson basis, what's this lesson all about? What do they need to achieve? And are you involved then in the Code Clan teaching of the course, or did they have to bring in tutors to do that? So they, I designed it and I delivered it in terms of got the content written. Yeah. Um, there have been a couple of sections that I have taught, but um, they now have uh, their own teachers teaching it. That's cool. So um, yeah, they've mainly taught it themselves. And some of them have wrote, written it as well. So we had a lot of the people who wrote sections of it then teach. And it's the first cohort done. Second cohort is done. That's that's cool. Last week. And the software development one is now a, f- a few more kind of cohorts have went through that, right? Like the they're on thirty something in Edinburgh and some teens in Glasgow and it's just such so a they g- must have nearly n- nearly fifty cohorts been through it. It's just such a great initiative. Um, so are those first two cohorts then, are they starting to see the benefit of they can get into industry now and they've used that course yeah. to, to get a leg up? Well, I think the, the, the point there is that there's more, there'd be more people wanting to recruit off the, that course than there were students on it. That's a nice place to be. Yes. And the opposite of most degrees, I imagine. Yeah. They so like hundreds of people qualify with a degree and two jobs to go into. Yeah, and it's the other way around, I think. That's I think amazing. So, so yes, if I can advertise it to the world. Go for it. That's, that, there you go. You see, it's, it's a great... It's a great thing to do. Yeah, no, it, it sounds good. And then the SKA thing, I mean, it's just like, uh, I've been into this before as well, but when I was in school, like the, the computer science, data science, technical stuff, although I would have been terrible at it, um, it, it, there was, it wasn't there. So unless you were really inquisitive and did it yourself, mm-hmm. you weren't going to stumble. Like someone like me wouldn't have stumbled into data science. And I think now you can get a flavor for it a school and then you can do it either at a university or at a code clan or anywhere. Like yes. it's, it's so it's so kinda of popular now. That there's really it's really good that 
that's happened. I mean, did you push the SQA for that or did they come to you or was it a bit of both? No, no, they were deciding to do a school level qualification. They, came, they, they were looking for people to help them out with it. That's good. So then you said it's the only one in the world as well. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe, but it's, it's cool that we've done it. And you said that you are always too busy and not too busy, you do too much thing, too much work, but you, you also are now involved in or have been involved in sitting on the board of Data Lab and non-exec director of Gamstop as well. So you do yes. loads more other than running a company, writing courses, growing a company, and now also sitting on the data lab and the, as a non-exec at Gamstop. So what, why those two things and how did they come about? So um, I got involved with the data lab because I think the data lab's brilliant. And yep. they put a call out for board members and I applied, not thinking that they would take me on. And <laughs> <laughs> they did. I think they were looking for people with left field views. So I gave them some left field views and they went, oh yeah, that's a bit left field. I think they may be regretting that now though. I'm sure they're not. <laughs> um, no, they do, they do some amazing work as well. And it's like, like we said about the universities earlier, like Scotland does kind of really punch above its weight when it comes to data. Mm-hmm. With like the Edinburgh Uni, the Cool Clan, like everything um, the data lab do as well. So um, no, it's pretty cool that you can, you can be involved in that. Um, and in Gamstop, they're not a Scottish based. It's UK wide. UK wide. Yes, it's yeah, UK okay. wide. So they are the national online self-exclusion scheme for gambling, yeah. which means that people can sign up if they wish to ensure that they can be excluded from gambling. Yes, okay. Which is, it's a very critical thing for people with gambling problems yeah. to be able to do that. And the Gambling Commission have now made it mandatory for all gambling um, operators to use GamStop. Yeah, I noticed it advertised, like, now, still not prominently enough probably, but it's much more prominent on like the branding of like adverts on TV and like on the apps and stuff like you actually do see it now mm-hmm. which I think before you probably had to go seek it out maybe yeah so so it, it's great that it's there and it works really really well and it's an absolute lifeline for the people who need it and I think they've got about a, over 100,000 people signed up that's insane and they do a lot of good stuff with technology right like it's quite is, is it quite, is there quite a lot of data involved with that there's as well? loads of data involved I mean so every time somebody um, logs on to to gamble they have to check that this person shouldn't be excluded and so you can imagine on particularly busy days like the Grand National um, they get you know thousands of hits a second so it's actually a technically interesting challenge as well I never really thought about it from like on a busy day where like everyone's jumping onto XYZ platform that it would have to check that yeah, so the, I mean, it's planned in advance. They plan yeah. to scale up to to accommodate it. But yeah, yeah no, it's, it's it's technically challenging as well as as being really valuable. No, that's amazing, and I'm sure that will get more and more important because it feels like although we do have that kind of stuff now, it's always just a bit too easy in terms of like gamble and stuff. I know it's in the news just now, and it's not really anything to do with the data podcast, but it is pretty terrifying. There's so many. It's so it's so easy to access it. Yeah. So you need something like this. Yeah, and I mean there were other solutions in place, and I think it's you know if people really wanted to limit themselves from gambling, they could sign up to all the different things. You know, they could put a block on their card, and they can yeah. register with Gamstop. It's hard to admit that, though, right? Yeah, but uh, you know when you're feeling strong, you can do these things. Yeah. No, that's true. And I suppose back to the the course writing. Is there a next stage of the Code Clan data analysis course? Like, will there be, maybe not an updated version, but is there another angle that it could go down and you could do another one? 
I'm not sure. That's that's kind of down to them, really. Yeah. Um, but you know, from an Athene perspective, we're obviously helping write some of these sort of learning materials for schools at the moment. Yeah. But we're also looking at developing our own courses where we see there are gaps. So we're doing quite a bit around sort of executive education and helping businesses understand what is needed to be successful with data, particularly startups. And so you could deliver those courses to those businesses or mm-hmm. could you even have like a, like, like a little mini training academy for maybe some of their staff to get better? Yeah, and we, last year we developed a course for data scientists which we call the Effective Communication Toolkit, which we, which we had, kind of had a two-day workshop about the softer side of data science, how to communicate uh-huh. effectively, how to actually be solving the right problem, how to understand the business context of the problem you're solving. And we've run that a few times, so if anybody does want us to run it again, we can very easily do so. Uh, we've spoken about this in a couple of the podcasts as well, the communication element of data mm-hmm. science is now, I think it's always been important, but it's probably now more important than ever because everyone is hiring data scientists or everyone mm-hmm. is... Or every business, not every business, but a lot of businesses are like poking around at how they could maybe use data. So you're going to need somebody that can tell them, whether that's externally from your company or, or another, or internally someone that can explain like maybe what's possible, what's not possible, what they should focus on. Well, I think our, our, our sort of two-day workshop focuses on asking the right questions. Yeah. So it's, we, um, and the way we've gone about it is we feel that the types of people that become data scientists their minds work in a very structured and logical way. So if we can help them ask those questions in quite a structured and logical way, it will then be more effective. Yeah, kind of play to their own strengths already. They just Absolutely. don't know yet. Yes, that's that's the approach we're taking. And get the kind of senior management of these businesses to kind of get to the answer. Because I imagine it happens loads, and you see it loads where there's just loads of half-finished projects. Yeah. And or half-started projects. Yeah, and, and even realising that they need to challenge senior management. So, you know, why are we doing this? And, you know, if, if you do that, what will it get you? It's yeah. making sure that they're solving the right problem. Yeah. Because, yeah, you could take months doing something that doesn't need solved. Or can't be solved, maybe. Or can't be implemented. Or can't, yeah, well, that model's sitting on a laptop. <laughs> and, yeah, that one, yeah. So, yeah, it's just a waste of everyone's time. And money, which is probably why people say data scientists don't work out in companies, is because they've not been able to implement anything that's essentially saved or made them money. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. But yeah. It, but you should definitely ask the right questions at the start. Yeah, find out as soon, as soon as you can rather than later. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour through career and education. It'd be cool to come back at the end of this year when Afini is just kind of keep on growing like you said uh, and see how it's all going and see how the courses are going as well is there anything we missed anything we should add any shout outs to anyone I think I've shouted out to quite a lot of people so far anyone want to shout out <laughs> not at all it's a safe place <laughs> not at all but um, no um, no well thank you very much for having no me no worries thanks for coming on um, and if anyone wants to find Afini is it Afini.com it is indeed do social media Afini data it was quite funny, actually. You might, people might remember this. I, I, I spoke at some conference and they went, ah, you're the effing data person. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. You it wasn't by it. design. No, I haven't changed it to effing data. It's effing data. But <laughs> yeah, Sam did say some, a few people have struggled to pronounce it. 
yeah. which for me it seems strange because I think it looks quite obvious but um, well I made the word up you see so oh did you really yeah I was going to ask right at the start why it was called a finny but I thought maybe I was just being stupid and didn't know what it meant no no it doesn't mean anything it's, it means it costs 99p to buy the website <laughs> it's like the flip side of the first podcast we did um, the CEO of the company drunkenly bought a better domain name after a few whiskies that cost several thousand pounds and yes. the 99p website is a much better idea so I had to I spent about two months trying to decide what I was going to call my company. Did you have like? Did you did you ask a lot of people, or did we just? Yeah, and I had a big up? whiteboard up, and and I had I'd have loads of ideas on it, and then my husband would come in and take one. And my children would come in and go, "No, I don't like that. No, rubbish." <laughs> so <laughs> you spent all day on it, and they're just ripping them off. No, the well, it just as ideas came, yeah. you know. And so they just go, no, no, no. And, and the thing was, I knew I wanted, I wasn't really sure what, what direction the business would take. So I yeah. didn't want to give it a name that sent it down a particular channel. Yeah, I think a lot of people do that at the start. Yes. Yeah, like so you AI and then you end up doing something completely different. Yeah, exactly. So it just needed to be something. I thought, you know, the Apple and Samsung never told you what they do. So That's a good point. So therefore it had to be just a word that wasn't too long. Um, I could buy it for 99p and um, nobody else had it. So, um, and no, it, it, he was born. <laughs> well, no, I, another friend then said to me, You should try. I said, I'm really struggling. And she said, You should try um, Icelandic words, they haven't been bought yet. <laughs> so, so, it's I, very niche. <laughs> it's very niche. So, I, I, I started going through us, sort of taking words and plugging them into Google Translate into Icelandic. And, and one of the words I really liked was ethni, which means kind of materials or ingredients or content oh, okay. in Icelandic. And I probably said it wrong. But then I couldn't even buy that because that, that domain was gone. So, so then another friend said to me, well, why don't you just call it Effany? And actually my daughter's favourite teddy is called Effie. So it was so just It's like, all worked out. So it was just, so there, so, and then I typed that one in. It was, oh, I can have that for 99p. So there we go, Effany was born. I love that. That's <laughs> the part of the podcast we've not done, going into why people call their companies what they call them. I don't think anyone will beat that though. Icelandic <laughs> 99p domain related to a teddy and was one word. <laughs> That's a good place to finish. Uh, no, thank you very much for coming on. Um, I hope we can do it again. Thank you. Cheers. So that was a fun one. Thanks again to Joe for speaking with me. I'm pretty sure we'll sit down again in late 2020 and Afini will be absolutely smashing it. So I can't wait to see how that goes. Um, and thanks again to Cathcart for sponsoring and uh, supporting the podcast. Um, they really do make it easy for me to do these things. I hope you enjoy and see you next time. Bye for now.